Primera de Tesalonicenses 4 La vida que agrada a Dios En cuanto a lo demás, hermanos y hermanas Les enseñamos a vivir para agradar a Dios Como de hecho lo están viviendo Ahora les pedimos y les instamos En el nombre del Señor Jesús A que hagan esto más y más Porque ustedes saben cuáles son las instrucciones Que les dimos de parte del Señor Jesús La voluntad de Dios es que sean santificados Que se aparten de la inmoralidad sexual que cada uno aprenda a controlar su propio cuerpo de una manera santa y honrosa y que en este asunto nadie haga mal o se aproveche de un hermano o hermana porque Dios no nos llamó a ser impuros sino a vivir una vida santa ahora bien, acerca de su amor mutuo no es necesario que les escribamos porque ustedes mismos han sido enseñados por Dios a amarse unos a otros no obstante, hermanos y hermanas les animamos a amarse aún más y más Yeah, you clap for that. That's all right. That's all right. That makes me, you know, that just makes me happy that we are honoring National Hispanic Heritage Month. The reason we do these kinds of honorings when, when um, uh, the calendar comes is because uh, so often in our culture, there are folks who get no honor, who get no um, attention, who, who are marginalized. And so we as a church with our mission to reconcile to God and to one another. We always want to feature that. So to Diana Morales today, thank you so much for reading. And Yvonne Colon last week for the benediction in Spanish. And, uh, we have several things coming up as this month progresses. Uh, and it's mid-September to mid-October. So uh, we'll be right with you. But thank you, Diana. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that um, you are the lover of your people that uh, guides us on how to love each other mas y mas, more and more. If I had a subtitle today after Diana's reading, I would say mas y mas, more and more. Father, we thank you that uh, this is your will for us uh, to love you and to love one another more and more. Father, teach us to practice that so we get good at it as we get older in you. And we look forward to your word today uh, and we thank you uh, for your scripture, the word of God. Uh, that love letter that you've given us through these centuries. We thank you. And now pray that you'll grow up in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated in his presence. That was lovely. I was actually getting a little teary there. You all know me. If you know me well, you know I get teary over, you know, Hallmark cards. But, um, but, but when we honor one another like that, it just it goes right to my heart because I think that's our job on this planet is to, is to put our arms around each other. So... We will, uh, we'll, work on, we'll work on that today. Open your Bibles, if you would, online. And by the way, welcome online. We love seeing you, um, and we hope you'll join us soon. Uh, we have three more weeks here at the Pavilion Outdoors, then we'll be moving indoors to Federal Hill Prep, as Kristen said. Uh, but we'll keep repeating that so you get it. But we'll be here for three more weeks. And by the way, Corey and Rashima Barnes are coming back in three weeks. So our first indoor service uh, at Federal Hill Prep, Corey will be back with his first sermon back from sabbatical. And hello to you, Corey and Rashima. We know you're watching, and we love you. And I'm, I really miss you guys. So, yeah. Uh, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to be in the first 12 verses. And I want to ask you this as we go and say this. Is there any more problem... Uh, more persistently mysterious to a follower of Christ than the problem of the will of God, discovering the will of God. And of course, I get it, we can ignore the matter of finding the will of God, and we can go our own way, 
Uh, and we do that way too often. I do that way too often. But for anyone who wants to take their faith in Christ seriously, that's really not a thing. It's not a path that works to ignore the will of God. Now, Grace City, the will of God is frequently conceived of as some kind of program guide. We ask questions like, how can I find the will of God? How can I find what God wants me to do? Who should I marry? Where should I live? And such questions, though very relevant to our own hearts, indicate that finding the will of God has resolved into a matter of guidance. And I want to declare at the outset this morning that if we approach the problem this way, our frustration with the will of God as a topic will only multiply. So for our series that we've been in for the last four weeks, The Gospel at Work, today's text uh, from 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 12, it offers us a gift that I'm titling The Life That Works. We've had the message that works, the ministry that works. Today, the life that works. Now, Grace City, the will of God that this scripture text today talks about, the will of God is not hidden. It's not a secret it is not a problem to be solved. It is not a program to discover. It is a relationship. Somebody say relationship. I told you when we started this series that the Word of God is like, you know, we sometimes try to simplify it. God said it. I believe it. Uh, that settles it. Don't ever say that. The Word of God is, is complex. It is meant to be. It is meant to give us life and make for a life that works, and it takes discernment. The will of God, we're going to see today, is about a relationship. And I want you to think, I want you to use your brains today. The will of God is less about what you do and more about whose you are. Whose you are. And therefore, it's not primarily a question, James, of guidance. It is primarily a question of surrender. So let's turn to today's scripture. There are only two places in the entire New Testament where you find this phrase that Diana read this morning, it is God's will that. Two places that you find this phrase, and both of these happen to occur in Paul's letter to the first Thessalonians here, in first Thessalonians. Here is the first of these two statements, and it's in our text today, chapter four, the first part of verse three. Take a look. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, you might know this word, that this word sanctification derives from the same root word from which we get the word holy. Somebody say holy. If we were to, or if I was to invent, because you know I like to invent words, Marjorie, don't you? If I were to invent a word that expresses what sanctified means, it would be holyfied. H-O-L-Y-fied, holyfied. This is the will of God that you should be holyfied. So with this in mind, let's look at two ways in our text today uh, as to how we can experience the will of God, experience the will of God. And the first point I want to make is this, that the will of God is custody conceded, custody conceded. What do we mean when we say a thing is holy? What do we mean when we say a thing is holy? Look at your Bible. It says, Holy Bible. The land of Israel is called the Holy Land. The city of Jerusalem is called the Holy City. The Bible reminds us to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Why? What is the quality about all these things that they share in common? Here it is. They all belong to God. 
They all belong to God. That is why they are holy. Perhaps one of the most helpful ways of expressing the will of God in our lives is to put it in this very practical way. The will of God is simply this, that you and I will become God's property and belong to him. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you become God's property, custody conceded. Peter states this, just this, Peter, in his first letter, and you'll see it on the screen and you'll see it at home. He says in chapter 2, verse 9, watch this. You are a chosen people. He's talking about Christians now. A holy, sanctified nation. Watch this. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you into his wonderful light. That's it. That's it. God's holy possession. And it's more than the idea that he owns you. And Paul expresses this beautifully in his prayer to Ephesians. It's so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the will of God, church. His presence in us that accomplishes his will and makes us holy, sanctifies us. We are his home. He is the homeowner. We are his home He's the homeowner. This is what sanctification is about. <clears throat> now listen, excuse me about that. I bet that came out loud online, so sorry. Now listen, unlike other holy things that belong to God that we just went through, with human creation, it's an entirely different dynamic. It's entirely voluntary. Love never compels, and God is love. Therefore, the will of God is that we may voluntarily surrender concede our custody, the will of God is that we would voluntarily surrender our body, soul, and spirit. But you must agree to concede custody of yourself. He will never force that issue. God's question to you is this, and to me, are you willing to concede custody to me, who made you? This is why Paul begins his marvelous, and I'm sure many of you have read this over and over in your Christian life, his marvelous 12th chapter to, the, to Romans begins this way. I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you, Grace City, to offer your bodies, soul, spirit. It's, whenever bodies is used, it's, it's the whole, a whole thing of who we are. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, substitute sanctified, sanctified and pleasing to God. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind Watch this, then you will be able to test and approve what? What God's will is. This is the will of God, that you be sanctified, belong to him, present yourselves as living sacrifice. Our very self, this is exciting, presented to God for his exclusive use. And Paul is making the case that it's not an intrusion on our sense of self. It's not some, some takeover of who you are. It's a fulfillment of who you are. That, that we as mere creatures may access our best life. Somebody say, live in the best life. We sing songs about this, and this is what this is about, that we may access our best life by conceding custody to the one who made us. This, Paul says is in, in Romans 12 that we just read, is a voluntary, mindful, intelligent fulfillment of our created purpose. Do you have some other way you would rather go? I would ask. Now, I know what many of you are thinking, and I think this too. You're saying, oh, Bob, I've heard this before, and I have made this surrender, and I've meant it when I did it. I have presented myself to God many times before, and I've said, Lord, here I am. Send me. Use me. I've meant every word of it, and I am still confused about it. 
It's not that I'm unaware that God wants me to be his. My, my problem lies in, in recognizing what it looks like and how to do it. I'm still confused. And Grace City, I want to say if that ever goes through your mind, you are in good company. No one is more personally aware of this interior struggle than the Apostle Paul himself. Read his graphic biographical account in Romans 7. And, you know, don't do it now, but... When you, sometime this week, he goes through his history of his struggle with the Lord. And if you read his account, you will swim in his very frustration. He is frustrated with this. And he says at the end, he says, for I have, see if anybody, raise your hand if you relate to this. Just raise your hand now because you will. For I have the desire, this is Paul, not Bob. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Hands? Paul, too. You're in good company. Don't give up. Because though it's difficult, even for the Apostle Paul, he doesn't avoid it with the Thessalonians, and he doesn't avoid it with us, and we're not going to avoid it with each other. Look at verse 1 back in our text in Thessalonians 4. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you, and I love this, masi mas. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, masi mas. So we have a clue that we're about to get into as to what his teaching included in this matter of how to please God. And he wants them to pour gas on what they're already practicing. Do it more and more. That's kind of cool. There's, you don't need to constantly discover, do more and more of what you already know. So if the first way to a life that works is God's will, is custody conceded, this leads to our second part of Paul's teaching in our text today. And this is the second part, is God's will is principles practiced. Somebody say that, principles practiced. One of the greatest weaknesses in contemporary Christianity, church, is our neglect of ethics. Ethics. The practical instruction of moral conduct. And as a result of this neglect, we have become known as a people who will preach the gospel, but we are not particularly known as a people who will live the gospel. Amen? Followers of Christ are not particularly conspicuous in the community for honesty and business, for politics of integrity, for generosity of lifestyle, or for building communities of compassion. And among the prime reasons for this, Grace City, is that we don't teach ethics the moral principles that govern personal and communal behaviors in Christ. Now, of course, I get it, we are often frightened that we might be branded legalists who compromise the gospel of free grace by adding good works to the equation. We don't want to go there. I get it. Or we say something like Paul said, we're not under the law, Bob, as if that means we're free to ignore it and never teach it. But this is not a thing in our faith, church. Paul goes to great lengths to say, your freedom under the law does not mean you should do whatever the heck you want. And he goes into that. That's, that's a tough, it's just not a thing. So here we learn that during this time with the Thessalonians, Paul had three weeks with them when he established the church, Paul gave them not only the essence of the good news, he gave them the essence of the good life. Not just the good news of the gospel, but the good life. He gave instructions that the followers of Christ must practice a moral economy that is personally and communally, 
Don't miss one for the other, personally and communally, pleasing to God. And he did so uh, with two powerfully relevant illustrations. And following Paul's pattern here, I want to see the life that works inside of our duty to give ethical instruction. We must, we must not be afraid to do this, especially to teach ethics to our children, uh, for, you, for you parents. This is urgently needed today. And we have to teach it with authority, Kelly, don't we? I mean, that's, and I, when I say that, that's not easy in a permissive age. It's just not. Where absolute values and moral standards have been replaced by a relativistic vibe and the embrace of a post-truth culture. Somehow we've gotten our arms around, oh yeah, let's just do that. Let's be post-truth. Let's not care too much about truth or, or, or values. Let's just kind of let whatever stand, stand. And listen, this was difficult for Paul as well. Listen, the world of today is no worse than Paul's Greco-Roman world in the ancient Near East. Moral laxity was a given in the Roman Empire. And all you have to do is read the histories, see the movies to know what I'm talking about. Moral laxity was a problem. But Paul gave authority to moral instruction, and he's, he's asking us to do it too. So must we. He claimed, by the way, that his moral teaching, like his gospel that we talked about last week, that his moral teaching was God's word, not his word. Look at verse 2 and verse 8 uh, at home and here. For you know the instructions we gave you. about to get into those, by the way, which instructions they were. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, verse 8. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject me, Paul, a human being. He re he's rejecting God. So that's pretty, that's pretty significant stuff right there. This is the word of God. And here, church, he gives two main characteristics of the holy, sanctified people of God who have conceded custody. There are many more. Here he singles out two, no doubt, in response to questions that he'd received from Timothy after his visit to the Thessalonian church. The first is about sexual self-control, which has both personal and communal impact. And the second is wholly communal. It's about the love for God's people. It's the word used, philios. Somebody say philios. This brotherly love that we talk about, Philadelphia, etc. This is, this is the second instruction that we'll get into. And these two things remain deeply relevant pillars for ethical teaching in our own day. So let's look first at the personal arena of our sexual practice. And I understand there's young ears in here. Don't get nervous. Um, I, I will be circumspect, I promise you. So this first uh, ethical teaching he's talking about is very personal. I'm going to call it body life that is personal. Body life that is personal. And the second point will be body life that is communal. Now, I'm aware as Paul brings this topic into our consideration that Christians, followers of Christ, are often considered by the world to be preoccupied with sex as a moral topic, often to the exclusion of anything else. And I, I actually find that to be a just criticism. But in some self-defense against this accusation, I think that we must say that sex, although it is a decidedly marvelous God-given gift and instinct, has become like everything else in human practice. It has been twisted, beginning at the fall in Genesis 3, it has been twisted by sin. Sex has not managed to escape the selfish twisting of the corruption of, of creation design. So for many, for many people today and in Paul's time, sex remains the toughest dimension of life for human beings to get their arms around and to have any sense of control. And we must say that unboundaried sex remains destructive of human life, of human dignity, of human community. It can break marriages and homes with toxic fallout on the adults and children that live in them. We, we all know this. So followers of Christ are right to be concerned about it, 
And we need to have a true and holistic biblical understanding of it. So with young ears in the pavilion, let me be circumspect in my message at this point. And I want to offer to any of you who would like, because I know this dimension is so huge, if you'd like to meet up with me and say have coffee to have more practical and, and more direct conversation about things that are on your mind, I would be thrilled to have that meeting with you. Here's a bit of what Paul writes in verses 3 to 8. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, and that in this matter, no one, I watch, don't forget this part, because this is where it becomes communal, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Literally, church, verse 4 translates this, that you may learn to possess your vessel in holiness and honor. Here, when we read in English, to control the body, you, you must remember that Paul is referring to the body in the Greek. It means far more than our physical mechanism with our five senses. The vessel here is our total body life structure, body, mind, and soul. And with that in mind, let me talk about sex in, for a minute. And this would sort of be the vibe, and Sue, you might agree with me on this. I didn't run this by you before in this, but... Um, but this is the kind of vibe we would have in our dinner table discussions with our children as they grew up about sex. And I remember my, daughter, my eldest daughter coming home uh, from college after her freshman year with a group of her, in the middle of freshman year from college, and one of them said, hey, can we have one of the Bingham table family discussions about sex tonight? And I said, really? And, uh, and we did. So this is something we talked about at various age levels in a variety of ways. And I want to begin with this way. Church, as I grow older in Christ, I feel like a life that works, that's our title, I feel like a life that works is a continual exercise in discovering through God's providence and discipline just how much more God is committed to my freedom and liberation than I am. So I want you to, to keep that in mind. In these verses, Paul sets up a contrast that I find in my uh, 60s ever more delightful as, as we grow into its implication. In verse 7, the contrast that, that Paul is making here is firmly set between God's will, sanctification, for his people, and the cultural, cultural messaging all around us. Here it is in verse 7, summed up. For God, here's the contrast. For God did not call us to be impure, which the culture calls us to, but to live a sanctified life, a holy life. Now at first, at first hearing that sounds like a God who wants to take all the fun out of our lives, doesn't it? Especially for young Christians. I think that's what they think. And all too often, we as Christian elders give that impression. The worst example of it would be St. Augustine's writings on sex that for centuries took over and, and uh, uh, was, was horrific, frankly, on our view of sex. And still lingers, by the way. You can have coffee with me about St. Augustine. But let's just take a moment as a church to weigh a few of the contrasting messages of the world versus God when it comes to sex. When it comes to sex, the world says two oddly matched things. Stay with me. The world tells us, on the one hand, sex is no big deal. And then it says, by, by pure volume and variety and focus... At the same time it says it's no big deal, it says you should be obsessed with it. It's no big deal, Mark, but Christian, you ought to be obsessed with it. And we're going to make sure you stay obsessed with it because we're going to make you deal with it all the time. We're going to sell you things with it. We're going we're to make your mind 
just take this, this and just make you unable to, to do anything else or think of anything else. No big deal, by the way. But be obsessed. But God says, by way of contrast, and by the way, that's not a paradox. You all know I love paradox. That's just opposites colliding. All right? No big deal. Be obsessed with something that's no big deal. God says something that's not a paradox either, but it is complimentary. Watch this. God says sex is a very big deal. It's a very special gift. And then he adds, so guard it so that it will be the very best. Guard it so it will be the very best that I made it to be. Now let me ask you, church, which one of these views is burdensome and which one is liberating? Which one has the best chance for enduring and, and being restorative? Which one? Where do you want to live? Church, when it comes to God's principles versus any other message you listen to, God's principles versus the world's principles. Remember, he is more committed to your liberation and your freedom and your thriving and a life that works than you are. And you can trust him for that if you will concede custody to him. He's got you when it comes to living your best life, including sex. Have coffee with me. That's all I'm going to say about it. Now, but as I move into this communal illustration that Paul gives about loving one another... And I want to take a really close look at Paul's admonition. I want to, I want to remind you of what, and I, I really, I remind you of this because I really stand with C.S. Lewis on this, who wrote this decades and decades ago. He, says, he said this about um, these, these two illustrations today. He said, the sins of, he said this, the sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling, and backbiting, the pleasures of power and of hatred, those are the worst sins we practice. I believe that. That gives us a framework to think about this. And we can have coffee about that too. Let's look at the body life communal, the body life communal. Keep in mind that a life that works is strategically placed and planned to please God alone, not the world around us is strategically planned to please God alone. So as we know God more deeply, we learn to ask this question. It's a very practical question. Will this please him or displease him? This is a safe, practical principle that we can all apply. Look at, slide, look at the slide that has verse 1 and verse 10 on it. We see in verse 1, we've already read it, but here it is. Our Christian duty is to please God, and the second part of that is to please him more and more. Masimas. The same expression is used in verse 10 as we begin this second illustration. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to love one another and to do so how? More and more. In our culture, we have three possible expressions of what will please or displease God in our communal body life. The first would be this. Nobody cares. And that happens rarely, and it would displease God. Everybody cares. That almost never happens. That would be very pleasing to God. Someone cares is what happens most often. And that grace city is the heart of our work and ministry. Someone is enough. In fact, someone is the entire point. Someone is you and me loving our neighbors more and more. Somebody say more and more. Say it louder. 
more and more. Paul writes something awesome in verse 9. Watch this. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. <laughs> but he does. We don't need to write to you about your love, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And I want to say to you, like Paul, I don't need to tell you about how to love one another. I'm, you're my heroes for how you love on one another, Grace City. You, you do it. But I will say, like Paul says here, pour gas on your love for one another. Do so more and more. That's our job description. This is the will of God, that you be sanctified. So love thy neighborhood. Right, Lil? We have a prayer walk today, and some of you are like, I wonder if we should go. I don't know. Maybe I, I, the football game starts at 1. Listen, I get those conflicts. I'm right there with you. That's not a problem. But this practicing principles is where we actually get good at this stuff, at doing more and more. When you practice it, it's like learning. If you've never played golf, you've got to practice the swing. It takes time to get good at it. So does service. So does loving one another more and more. It just takes practice. A prayer walk is practice. We'll have a neighbor's meeting, neighbor's um, meeting in, in Sharp Leadenhall later in October. Come to neighbor's meeting, neighbors, your neighbors, whether you live here or not, you church here. Uh, we'll have a, this candy caravan the, the Sunday before Halloween. It's, it's an awesome way to, to bring in children from the neighborhood. These are, this is loving each other more and more. We have We Are Us that I get to walk with every week. You can too. We have Orphan Network coming in in our Hispanic Heritage Month to talk about our partnerships in Managua, Nicaragua, and, and what we can be doing more of, more and more of down there. All of this can be the way we practice as a body, as a family, as we reconcile to one another and to, and to God. And Lil, would you just stand up, Lil? Right, right, raise your hand, Lil. Lil, Lil has been our, uh, I want you to notice her because I want you to talk to her after service. And next week we'll actually have her at a table to, because she is your conduit to do more and more in this neighborhood. She's been doing it for a hundred years. Well, not that long. Ten-ish ten years. And, and she has um, connections here to plug us in in ways where you can practice more and more. It's, it's really kind of fun. Part, listen, church, part of our opportunity is to normalize the behaviors we'd like to be around, both personally and communally. And it's not simple, and it can be absolutely exhausting, like my sermons. But listen, listen, marathon runners don't complain about the tired because getting tired is a necessary component of a race, a race well run. And followers of Christ, all of us are going to find moments of cultural distress and human need every day. We can go and find it. But it's up to us, each one of us, what we want to trade in the short run and in the long run in order to deal with it and to love on it and to be present in it. It's up to us to practice. You see, Paul sees our life in Christ here as a continuous process of growth and practicing God's moral principles. This is the will of God. And, and it will have its moments of exhaustion, but these are grand moments. These are rich moments. Do you have something better to get exhausted about? You're going to be exhausted anyway. Why not get exhausted, exa <laughs> exasperated, exhausted practicing the principles of God? You're going to get there anyway. Let's get exhausted together doing his stuff more and more. In 2 Corinthians 5, he writes that Christ, in, many of you will know this, in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come, remember? But a bit later in that same paragraph, he says this, so that we might become the righteousness, sanctification, holiness of God. 
so that we might become. Church, our life in Christ is a becoming. It's a becoming. Grow, growing up is our job description. Pleasing God more and more is our opportunity. And listen, spiritual and moral complacency is a horrid thing. I, I say that as a therapist as well as a, as a, as a pastor. Getting st like stuckness in a relationship or a person's life is the hardest thing as a, as a psychotherapist to get after in a client's life. Stuckness, homeostasis, that staying still is horrid and it's powerful. I can't overstate how powerful it is. It's the hardest thing. I, so I would say to you this morning, beware of a spiritual experience that says you've arrived. Beware of that. Don't ever go there. Beware of complacency. Beware of stuckness. We have the pr privilege in this text today to surrender our custody to God and to practice the principles of God, to please God more and more and more in our personal practice, in our love for one another. This is the will of God, that you be sanctified. It's a relationship. It's not a program guide. As the worship team comes up, I'll say a couple more words just to give them time to get up. That's the secret. Continuous growth. Let's take that message away with us this morning. Continuous growth. I want you to ask yourself this week, try to remember to do this, church. Try to remember to ask yourself, will it please God? Will it please him more and more? And so leave today with that on your heart, if you will. Father, I want to please you more and more. You'll find it's absolutely, I, I want, this is, I'm, I'm moving out of emotional and spiritual. This, this question, this heart's desire is a practical, realistic, liberating path to the life that works. You want to live your best life, then go that way and let's do it together. Let's get exhausted together. Amen. Let's stand and sing. We're going to sing the song, Thy Will. And I want you to think of the will of God, not as you sing this, not as a program guide, but as a relationship. Can we sing that way? See you in a minute.